Welcome to the MFR Coaches Podcast, where we talk about how you can create a six-figure MFR practice. I'm your host, Heather Hommel. Not only have I been practicing MFR for 11 years, I'm also a life and business coach, especially for MFR therapists. My goal is for you to understand how to get fully booked, how to talk to your clients, and how to make sure they understand what's possible for them with MFR treatment. I'm here to help you stop under earning, overworking, and burning out. I'll lend support so you can create the MFR practice you've always wanted. Learn how you can do it too, even if you live in a tiny town, and even if you're just starting out, and even if you've ran your practice for years. Let's go. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the MFR Coaches Podcast. I am joined today by one of my very favorite instructors. She is Joan Miller. You guys might also know her as Mickey, as John loves to call her. She is here with us to record the podcast today. Joan, welcome to the program. I'm so happy you're here. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thank you for having me. This is really a pleasure. This is awesome. Okay. Tell us a little bit about your business. What's the name of your business? How long have you been in business? Where are you located? My business is Dynamic Directions. And I actually have a home office here in Lakeland, Florida, which is right in the center of the state. I was doing, well, I took my first myofascial release class in 1986, which I'm fond of saying when I teach classes before many of you were born. <laughs> and it was really quite an amazing journey. I mean, right off the bat, it changed my practice immensely. Like I tell people, I went to MFR one, I had to come back and work in the clinic for four days and then go back to MFR two. And literally my whole approach was, it rocked my world because in those four days, everything was completely different. So MFR was definitely you know right on the path for me. And then um, I worked for a big company back then. Well, it was small and then we grew. And at the time I was able to take a lot of seminars and I was so excited at MFR2. When I went back, I told John Barnes, this is just amazing. I, you know, it's just changed everything in these few days. So he, at that point said, well, if you're that excited about it, you might want to start assisting which I did, I think, uh, maybe one course later at the time, believe it or not, there were only three courses in the whole coursework. Mm -hmm. He also knew that I had done martial arts. That was one of the connections we made at MFR1 and that I love to teach. So after assisting for a year or two, John was gracious to offer me an opportunity to teach um, basically an introduction course, because back then, as I said, there were only three classes and people were inviting him to do little one-day intros, and he did not have the time to do that. So I was very fortunate to do that for a couple of years. And then we birthed fascial pelvis in 1990, which was very exciting for me because I love manual therapy, and the integration of myofascial release and manual therapy was great. It was so exciting to me. And then in 1998... I left the company that had grown and grown, and it really wasn't about what I believed in anymore and went out on my own just thinking, oh, I'll do you know some consulting, some myofascial, kind of arrange my business, and it just grew. I did private pay, cash only, and it grew and grew. And so now 20, whatever, six years later, that's, you know, that, that's the only thing I focus on is integrated myofascial release. I love that. And it's kind of like groundbreaking that you were doing cash-based 26, yes, almost 30 years ago. Yes. And as a woman, as a practitioner, and you created a thriving business, like just from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, the physicians I knew at the time that had referred to the company I was in, and it was really a musculoskeletal type practice, which is my forte. Mm -hmm. They said, oh, nobody's going to pay cash. Nobody will come see you. Yeah, they still say that. I know, but I did. And even though I started small, now I'm busier than I want to be. Yeah, I love that so much. It's just, it just really goes to show you can create whatever you want and the sky is the limit. Like we're our limiting factor most of the time. And I just, I just want to take a pause here to just say like how inspiring it is to know that you were doing that back then. I was alive in 1986, just so you know. 
I was born in the seventies. Okay. So, but just to know that you were, you know, paving the way for everybody else. And for us to remember all the people that have gone before and have laid this groundwork so that we can be having these businesses now, right? Like you have been an instructor with MFR seminars way back since the beginning of time. And that just, it blows my mind to see the evolution of John's business, the people that work for him in that business, the people that are instructing to, you know, bring MFR forward and all of the seminars that have been created since then. Like it blows my mind. What were the names of the seminars back then when it was just three seminars? Do you remember? Yes, it was My Fashion Release 1, My Fashion Release 2. And I Unwinding was new under John, but I don't remember if it was actually called Unwinding at the time, it, because the one that I went to after those was obviously the Unwinding class. It was the only one left. Yeah. And then, um, but I, I'm not sure if that was the same exact name as it is now, but it definitely developed into that. And then the soft, we called it soft tissue mobilization, the introduction. Oh, yeah, mobs, yeah. Yeah, the one. And then uh-huh. it became myofascial mobilization. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's so cool. I just love, I love like the history of it is so fascinating to me. Yeah. And to see, and it also just goes to show that no matter who you are, even if you end up as John Barnes, like he right. still started out, you know, with three simple classes that then evolved over time because he, didn't stop there. Like he learned more and created more and people were there to want to learn from him. That's just, that's so cool. Such a cool experience. I'll make an admission too. This is yeah, probably for what we're talking about, the cash business. That first year I started, I have to admit, I took a couple of insurance patients. Sure. You know, that whole feeling of, oh, I feel badly. You know, one was a breast cancer patient, which we're going to talk about. And I knew her from our martial arts class. Yeah. And so I, I just felt like, oh, I'm going to make an exception. I don't know, a handful of times, maybe three, four, five, who knows? Yeah. And it was such a problem. And I like one of them. And now, if you think about 26 years ago or whatever, 1998 is right. Mm-hmm. I lost $1,500 on one, which then that was a, I mean, that's a lot that's of a money. lot of money now, but that was a lot of money then. And, you know, three or four people later, whatever it was, I just said, you know, why am I doing this? It was the height of managed care, which is one reason I went out on my own. And I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I ended up having to put my foot down about that to myself. Yeah. To, to myself. yourself, right. It's all about yeah. to ourselves. It's really yeah. not what the clients are doing or saying. It's about our reasons behind why we don't take insurance and why we are cash-based. It's because it blocks us from taking care of many other people when we're, when we're losing money and spending time on paperwork. Exactly. Our skill set is really not a good use of time to be filling out paperwork and hoping to get paid later. It's not. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think this is a good segue to talk about breast cancer and you are a breast cancer survivor. Yes. Thriver. 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 (laughs) I like to say that. Thriver. Yeah. Breast cancer thriver. Do you want to share your journey here? And for people that don't know your story, tell us kind of the path of all of the breast cancer stuff. Sure. There's a really good link here because it was August of 2009. Okay. And I had had mammograms regularly. And, and I always had very dense fibrocystic breasts, which if people don't know by now, which now it's becoming much more of a known entity, that very dense breasts have a higher risk of not only of breast cancer, but the most important of finding it. And I listened to a lot of seminars and talks because I love to advocate and help people support them so that I feel like I had such an incredible outcome because of advocating and because of MFR Mm -hmm. that I have this passion, this mission to help others try to have the same wonderful outcome. And so I had regular mammograms, you know, with fibrocystic breasts. And as I said, Basically, the, one of the seminars made a great visual, which, you know, in my fashion release, visualization is huge. Yeah. She said was, when you have very dense fibrocystic breasts, 
on a mammogram, finding a breast cancer is trying to identify one snowflake in a snowstorm. Mm, yeah, that's so good. That's such a good picture. Isn't it? Like yeah. you just, you know what also blows my mind is that's true. And they'll read your mammogram and say it's clear. Yeah. Yeah. And now there's a certain states already had it in place. And I, I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I think a federal law is going into place where women have to be informed what level of density they have, A, B, C, D. Yeah. And again, the more informed we are, the more we can advocate for ourselves mm -hmm. and for others. Yeah. Not to be afraid, but to be like, okay, the, this is just the information. How do you want to handle this information? Right. You can still do nothing. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like I heard yeah. you say that at one of, uh, one of the fascial pelvis. I mean, I've been to a lot of fascial pelvis. Let's just say it's like a drug to me. But yeah, I feel like I heard that analogy. I went and had a mammogram, found out I had dense breast tissue and I started to advocate for myself. Like, I think back then it was like, ask for an ultrasound. And then it's like yeah. kind of evolved over the years to much different testing and more testing, but it's been helpful for me. Mm -hmm. So yes, definitely. So what happened was I didn't ever really do regular self breast exams. You know, it was kind of sporadic. Yeah. And I was actually at a my a fascial pelvis seminar teaching in Montana, one of our favorite places in the country to go. And for whatever reason, because probably I was quieter and had downtime, you know, and I was doing breast self-exam, I guess in the evening, I don't remember. <laughs> and felt, I don't even remember. I felt something that felt like a little stone in my left breast. Now that was a completely different feel than the fibrocystic, the lumpies. It was lumpy, lumpy. This felt like a little pebble. Yeah. I thought, hmm, that's odd. And so I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do MFR. It's a cyst or something. But I already was due my mammogram when I came home. It was August. I was due my mammogram in September. So I called when I got back and I was, we took a week off after because of being in Montana. So I didn't, I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. I just said, well, I'll keep working on it and get my mammogram. I called and told them I felt something. So they changed it to a um, diagnostic mammogram and pushed it further out. And again, I wasn't concerned. I was working on it. I thought, okay, you know, that's fine. And when I went in, and I live in a relatively small town, at least to me, it's a small town. So I went in and they did the mammogram and... Then they added an ultrasound. So obviously I knew something was up. And on the ultrasound, you know, you can see the screen yourself, or I could. Yeah. There was a little black spot. And I thought to myself, ooh, that's not good. Mm -hmm. I wasn't all scared. I just said, ooh, that's not good. And then they told me to wait for the radiologist. And here comes a huge piece of advocacy that I am adamant about. And back then, you know, the ultrasound room, it may still be the same. I don't know. It's a little small, dark room. You know, there's one chair, you're sitting in the chair in a corner, you know, especially with the fact of my fascia release that we really understand how uh, body language, how verbiage uh, impacts us, how our emotions impact our physicality. That That's a huge part of my fascia release. Yep. So I'm sitting there waiting and the radiologist walks in, a man stands over me, does not sit down, does not pull up a chair, just stands over me looking down and says with no further preamble, well, we're very concerned about this spot on the left and we want to do a needle biopsy on that. And oh, by the way, on the right side, you have clusters of microcalcifications and this cluster we didn't see last time. We compared it, we didn't see it. So on that right side, you need to have stereotactic biopsy under mammogram. And here are the things that you shouldn't take for two weeks before you schedule it. And he turned around to leave. Jeez. And I said, wait a minute, I need to ask you some questions. First of all, I said, I treated a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine had had unbelievably like 12 biopsies in each breast at the same time. She called me up. Her breasts were black and blue. I did myofascial release. I did the lymph drainage kinesio taping. Thankfully, it resolved in a few days. Unbelievably, her doctor was amazed. But more importantly, I said, that taught me something. And first of all, I mean, 
I wasn't jumping into anything. So I said to the radiologist, I said, I understand that biopsies can cause some tissue damage. I said, I'm a physical therapist. I've treated that. Um, may I would like to please have a mammogram first. I didn't even say please. What I said was, would you consider doing an MRI first? Mm -hmm. And he looked at me very patronizing and said, you're thinking of orthopedic MRIs as a physical therapist, which are very diagnostic. In breast cancer, MRIs are not that clearly diagnostic. And then he said, anyway, they're expensive. <laughs> I'm, I said, I'd like my records. We don't do that here. I said, no, I'm a patient. I am do my records. I'm legally can have my records. Well, we don't do that. And I said, no, I want my records. He said, well, go to the front desk. And he walked out. Wow. Yes. So combative. I was so upset. Yeah. I wasn't scared. I was angry. Yeah. Sometimes anger is a good emotion to get you what you need. <laughs> yeah. I got my records and I'm very fortunate. I have a couple of very dear physician friends that are pretty brilliant. One's an MFR person and one's an or traditional orthopedist. And my friend, the orthopedist, and it's very funny. And when I tell this story, my husband's name is John, John Barnes. And now this best friend orthopedist of mine is also named John. We oh, have like the John triad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, right? So he lives, he's an hour and a half away. And I called him up that evening and I said, John, I said, your best friend, he's a perfectionist, which is what you want in a surgeon, right? Yeah. He travels and teaches with a friend of his who's a radiologist, who's also perfectionist. So I said, John, would you please ask Roman, the radiologist, if an MRI is indicated before biopsy. And by the way, all those weeks that I had to wait six weeks, it never changed. The pebble didn't change. It didn't get smaller or resolve or anything. Okay. So he said, sure. So he calls me back and he said, well, and this is what we know as my fascia release therapist. One reason I'm so passionate about it. He said, well, Roman said, of course you get MRI before biopsy, because once you have biopsy, the tissue changes. And then MRI is not as diagnostic in breast. Right. Because I think about all the scarring that occurs. Right. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it. When you take the time to rate and review the podcast, it helps other people to find it and enjoy it too. And the more MFR therapists out there using this as a resource to start or tweak their business, the better the world gets. So take the time, rate and review the podcast. Let me know how it's going. How's it helping you? Thank you so much for your time. Now back to the episode. So then he says, and he said to make sure you have a three Tesla magnet and a dedicated breast coil, la, 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 la. Well, I certainly wasn't going back to the place where I didn't care for the radiologist. And I said, well, can I get it down there? Sure. So I drive an hour and a half the next day. I get the MRI. And you know, I have to say that intuitive, like you said, listen to your gut, intuitive. When they were finishing the MRI, I had this little frisson, that French word, the little intuitive gut flutter that something was wrong. I, I just, at the end of the MRI, I hadn't been scared all that time. And it wasn't even fear. It was just something's wrong. Mm -hmm. I had that. You just knew. Yeah, I just felt something wrong. So the next morning, I'm treat. I'm about to treat patients. Or actually, I think it was in between patients. And the physician, John, who is one of these people who is so patient care forward, he always says, don't call me during the workday about a patient question. Call me at night because I don't want to interrupt my patient care. Great. Lovely. Like we know. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 10 o'clock in the morning, my phone rings. It's John. The, the physician. And I said, uh, you know, the minute I saw that, I knew in my stomach because he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. And this was before texting, you know, was a big thing. And he says to me on the phone, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but there's a tumor on each side. And I said, wait a minute. No, 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 no. There's only one on the left. He said, no, Joan, on MRI, there's a tumor on each side. And they both have a BIRADS of five plus, which I learned in the interim, all that after that, that BIRADS means it's specific to breast 
and a radiology uh, measurement based on prior biopsy that gives the propensity to be cancerous. And I asked him, what does that mean? And he said, well, that's like 95% chance of malignancy. Wow. Yes. So I, at that point, I have to say I was a little blown away. I was like, not what you're expecting. Right. And I actually said to him, you're kidding, which who says that? Right. And he says, no, Joan, I'm not kidding. It was kind of a reflexive. How can this be? Right. Well, for sure. I think all of us get through life basically one day at a time when nothing, you know, things just don't happen to us, right? <laughs> happens to right. the other people. Yeah. And I had never, besides, you know, cold or something, I never had been sick in my life. I never had major surgery. I never had anything wrong. You know, I was as healthy as healthy could be. So it was very shocking. And he said something that really changed the course of all these years for me, which was, you know, he had dealt with his father with a really serious stage four cancer. And he said, Joan, if it were my wife, he said, I would go out to MD Anderson. They're the best. He said, I would, it looks encapsulated. They both look encapsulated. If you go out there, maybe they can just do excision, you know, and see what they say and then go from there. And so I did, I called MD Anderson and they were phenomenal. And I went out there, of course, my husband, John went with me. And I will say, I know that there's a lot of traditional care that is very difficult for us to accept and the interactions and everything, but they are, they are very different. They really focus on care and compassion. They are all about excellence. And by the time we were through there, we knew that was it. I was going to be there. Mm -hmm. So what happened was when I went out, the day progressed and you bring all your reports, you know, they review it, they do all their own mammograms. And after the mammograms, which is very interesting here locally, they had done three positions. What am I trying to say? Three, like three views, three views. Thank you. Three views. I'm there and she comes in and repositions me. I don't remember. And I didn't count, but I bet it was like 17 views. Yeah. I knew by then something was wrong. And then this is, you know, there's a lot of parts that make me smile in here. And one of them was as I finish and the, the, the radiology technician comes, tells me to get dressed. She gives me this big hug and she says, bless you. Oh, something's wrong. (laughs) The way she said, bless you. I was like, yeah, they're almost too friendly. Right. I had that experience just getting a, um, biopsy done. (laughs) I'm like, you guys are being a little too like dramatic and sad during this time. (laughs) I kind of need to see you act like nothing's wrong. Right. You make you think, right? Yeah. And when you just think about all the women that sat in the room before you that didn't get a good answer. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they they were really something because they sent me right from there to ultrasound. I mean, yes, to ultrasound with biopsy. Mm. And by the way, they did core biopsies, not needle biopsy, which is very different. Yeah. Sounds different. Yes. And it's a bigger sample Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure what, how more they see, but it's a definitely different than any of biopsy. And interestingly enough, because it is a 100% cancer center, the radiologist doing the interventional radiologist doing the biopsy, she already knew what she was looking at. She sends me back with a printout sealed in an envelope. So the same day that we walked in there at 9.15 in the morning at 4.30 in the afternoon, the nurse practitioner is holding my hand and saying, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but we are relatively certain you have invasive ductal carcinoma on both sides. And on the right side, there were three, not one cluster of the microcalcification. There were three and they were all DCIS, they suspected, which is ductal carcinoma in situ. They call stage zero cancer, which is a bit of a misnomer, but it's definitely a predisposed to- turning, yeah. Is the calcification like your body's, your body is like trying to just take care of it itself? I don't know. It's I don't so know. interesting to me, like what your body does to, yeah. to protect itself and also that makes it worse or, you know, whatever happens. It's like yeah, a gate of events. Yeah. And she basically said, because of all the clusters of DCIS on the right, even though the tumors were about one centimeter each, which isn't huge, she said, you're already looking at mastectomy on the right because of all the other areas. Yeah. And so for me, basically, I mean, I was shocked. I, uh, you know, the big shock was, wait, 
how can this be? You know, I've never been sick before. But basically for me, the decision was pretty simple after that, that I was doing bilateral mastectomy. There, there wasn't much question about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So how long between diagnosis and surgery then? So this is actually a funny one too. They scheduled me with a surgeon. Now this was October 13, because I had all that time to wait between the finding in August, the long wait in my town, the mammogram, the MRI, the results, and then scheduling with MD Anderson, which they scheduled me within a week. Yeah. That was amazing. So the holdup was in like your local clinic. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because everything else happened like that, especially because my friend ordered the MRI right away, called me the very next day. You know, most people were 10 days, a week to 10 days for a result. So early November, which was, I think, maybe two or three weeks, I was scheduled with a surgeon. And this doctor ended up being really the best fit I could have ever had. I He got me as a person and he knew I was a therapist. He treated me differently. It was, it was really very special. And somehow, you know, it's not any choice. I just, there, you know, is the reason I got him and he got me. Yeah. So basically he went through everything with me, talked about the options. And I said, I've pretty much already decided on mastectomy. You know, I'm thinking about reconstruction. You know, back then I hadn't really thought about no reconstruction. Now it's a much more common thing. You know, there's a whole flat is fab, Mm. you know, flat is fab. Yeah. You know, and, and there's an MFR therapist who just chose to go flat as they call it. But then I didn't even think about it. Well, yeah, like 14 years ago was the era of like the bigger the boobs, the better you are, right? I mean, like it was not yeah. like I couldn't even imagine that as a choice that then. I didn't think about it then. And I just wanted to feel normal again. Yep. Because fortunately, now I'm going to get one of my soapboxes. Fortunately, MD Anderson, their reconstruction, by the way, is one of the best in the country, about the best in the country. But they are also very patient centric. And what I hear from many other ladies who I talk through and support through breast cancer and the consult doctor I went to in um, closer by, not not in my town, but closer, what they're asked all the time is, how much bigger do you want to be? So weird. Infuriates me. Like that's going to make up for the part where you're losing your breasts, you have cancer, but like, hey... You want to be a porn star or what, like, what, what can we give you? What can we serve you up that you wanted your whole life? Like, it's just terrible. It's demeaning. It's, I find that so offensive. Yeah. And he, my doctor never, you know, the reconstruction doctor I saw never asked that, but I know the, the consult one did and others did. What are they? They're just not thinking. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. But basically, so this is the really interesting part. So when I told him, he said, okay. Well, even though we didn't see anything that we thought was suspicious, we're going to do lymph node biopsies at the time of mastectomy because based on the lymph node biopsies, you may have to do radiation. And then that would change the course of implant reconstruction. You would have to do a flap, which is taking your body tissue for people who may not be familiar with that term and adding it. And I was like, wait, 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 I don't want any flap reconstruction. Not at all. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we won't know that until after surgery. And I said, wait, I said, for me, with my, the way my brain works, you know, the, my emotions work, I need to know when I'm going into surgery, what it's going to be. Yeah. Asked him, I said, why can't we do the bio, lymph node biopsies ahead of time? And he said, well, we don't do it that way. Protocol is we do it at time of mastectomy. And I said, why not? Yeah. Well, there's a surgeon in Kentucky that does that. And I said, I don't want to go to Kentucky. I like you. Because I, I mean, right off the bat, we hit it off. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of amazing to me. He pushed his chair back. Now, remember, MD Anderson's the number one cancer center in the country, if not the world. It's a huge place. They see so many people. They have so many good protocols in place. He pushed his chair back, put his hands behind his head, thought for about 30 seconds, said, yeah, why can't we? Right my book. He says, bring me my book. He said, if you can stay two more days, I'll do them Thursday. That's amazing. Changed protocol because I asked. But do they do it different for everyone now because it makes sense? The medical oncologist actually brought that up. She says, oh, I see that you did that. And maybe we should be thinking about that. Yeah. I don't know that it changed, but it changed for me. 
Yeah. Well, I think this is just such a good time to point out that you can really ask for whatever you want. And when you know what to ask for, because you're like really listening to yourself and honoring what you know is going to work out best for yourself to your best stretch of imagination when you've never had this kind of surgery, not hesitating to ask and being strong in that and just saying, you know, this is what I want. I'm willing to go somewhere else, but you know, why can't we do it here? Why not? Why can't we? It doesn't hurt to ask. And so that was an amazing piece to me. And then actually one thing I didn't say was when I left MD Anderson, instead of flying home, my husband flew home on the diagnostic day, not the lymph node day, the diagnostic day. And I flew to Sedona to get MFR. And I have to say this because it pertains to the surgery. There was some seminar going on. And what's interesting in all these years later, so many people have come to me and said, I was there that day. I don't remember. Obviously I was pretty emotional. Well, you know, yeah. and they did this incredible multi-person unwinding with me and all this energetic work. And like I said, people later say, I was part of that. I'm like, oh, I don't remember, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And John Barnes, the John. John yeah. Barnes himself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> leaned down and whispered in my ear. And, you know, you already said he calls me Mickey. He whispered in the mirror, Mickey, you're going to come out on the other side of this brighter and lighter than you've ever been before and stronger. Wow. And surround yourself with that. And that really affected me emotionally. And when I went into the surgery, which was December, they scheduled it for mid-December. When I went into surgery, I visualized that bright white light totally surrounding me and I didn't have any fear, any anxiety, anything going to surgery. I was totally calm. That's amazing. Good for you for going and having that treatment ahead of time. Because imagine if everybody did that, (laughs) you know, facing, because there is this level of fear before you, you know, all around the word cancer, even if it's stage zero or whatever. Yes. And we don't really have the wherewithal to process all of that. Like we just don't, we just don't know how to take that information and let it run through us. Yes. That's a great word. Run through us. Because if we hold it, we know what happens, right? Yeah. But it's so difficult to be like, don't hold on to that. Right. Cause you're like, right. I've got this hot potato and I can't let it go. <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Right. And there was another really, another thing about asking for what you want. When I saw the surgeon before the mastectomy surgery, after the lymph node vibes, I said to him, will I see you the morning of surgery? Because what happened on, I expected to see him the morning of the lymph node biopsies. I didn't. They just put me on anesthesia, you know, sent me away. They did it. Yeah. And he said, no, not usually the fellow usually comes or the resident, the resident or the fellow usually comes. And I didn't say anything, but he saw my face. I'm pretty easy to read when I want to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he saw my face. I think he sensed my disappointment. And he said, okay, okay, I'll try and come before. And sure enough, you know, you're in prep and you, I don't know if you haven't, you know, like I said, I'd never really had major surgery, but you know, the whole prep and the getting you ready and the anesthesia questions and all that. And just before they were getting ready to finish all that up, he comes walking in the room and gives me the warmest hug. And I knew everything was going to be fine. And the fact that I, again, I asked him, like, I really would like to see you before, you know, he made it happen and just gave me all that extra reassurance with that bright white light John had given me. And I really went in just totally okay. Yeah. That's so good. So what did you find out from the lymph node surgery? Unfortunately, this was actually more shocking than the breast cancer diagnosis. They called me, whatever, 10 days later, eight days later, I don't remember, and said, you know, you have a micrometastasis in each lymph node. Oh, wow. And I said, what? Because that changes the picture totally. Yeah. So when I went back for the surgery... And they had to take out, uh, again, I don't know how familiar everyone is, sentinel node biopsies, SNB sentinel biopsies, which is, you know, the nodes that light up that are the guardian nodes. Okay. And so it was relatively, I think it took them five or six on the right and maybe four on the left. I don't quite recall because they have to take all the guardian or the sentinel nodes to know. And that micrometastasis, which was tiny micro, um, still meant something. 
Well, then that meant I had to see a medical oncologist. And she was probably one of the only people at MD Anderson I didn't care for. She was very young and very rigid. And she said, you have to do chemo. Oh, I said, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I did the Oncotype test. So I was hormone receptor positive and I did an Oncotype test, which back then in 09 was relatively new. Mm -hmm. It was not guaranteed paid for. And that's testing your genome, not your genetic profile, your genome to tell you the propensity of benefit of either chemo or anti-estrogen medicine or combination. I'd done it on one side on the advice of the surgeon. And I said, but my, oh, we're not discussing it. She says, you're young. I was 52. You have to do chemo. Wow. Yeah. I was really taken aback. And my surgeon in the visit, the same guy, you know, again, there was a meaning, a reason we were together is he had told me in the visit before I saw her the same morning, three times in that hour, after you see Dr. A, if you want a second opinion, let me know. <laughs> he was preparing you. Right? Yeah. And she was insisting on full lymph node dissection on both sides. I said, absolutely not. I work with my arms. I do martial arts. Absolutely not. I went back to my surgeon. He said, you know what? I'll talk to her. I'll talk to her. So they made a compromise that he did take more lymph nodes out, which, you know, is a little higher risk in order to check. And thankfully, all of those were negative. But now I wear compression sleeves, et cetera. Yeah. But at least they were all negative and he only did a partial because he was reasonable and she was being very aggressive. And many people are led this way. They're, oh, if you have one little cancer cell, it might spread and, you know, bring that fear factor in. I don't like that. Yeah. It's not, it shouldn't be about fear. It should be about making good decisions that we feel good about. Well, yeah. And having like all the options on the table, even if you get this really scary diagnosis, remembering that you still have options and you still do have some control over what yes. you choose and quality of life. Sometimes we pick over quantity. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and sometimes Absolutely. you get to have both you get to decide what you want your life to look like. And I think when you have that full picture and you ask questions, you get to make better decisions and you can always make one decision and make a different decision later too. So I just love how you advocated for yourself and like ask these questions and, you know, God bless the doctor's little hearts that are so myopic and so focused, right? That makes them good at their job, but it also kind of makes them bad at their job in a way where they're just so like, this is the way we do it. And because we've always done it this way, we don't even see past our own faces when something else could be available and create a better outcome. So good for you for knowing that you could do that. And I did get a consult in Tampa, uh, Moffitt, and that medical oncologist was, you know, a little older. I mean, middle age, not, not so young and definitely more experienced and more not so rigid. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we would have to do the Oncotype test on the other side as well, because you cannot be certain that each tumor has the same properties. Okay. That was very logical. Send that one off. And guess what? They both came back as low benefit of chemo. And so she said, and this is what I really liked about her, because it's just what you said a minute ago, Heather. It's about making a choice and a choice that we can feel good about. She said, here's what it'll be. If it's low benefit, we don't have to discuss it. You go on the anti-estrogen medicine. If it's medium benefit, and there's numbers and graphs and all that. If it's medium benefit, she said, we will discuss it and you make a decision that you can live with. I love that. And she said, if it's high benefit, really, we don't need to discuss it. You need to do it. I could live with that. Maybe it would have, I wouldn't have done anyway, but it doesn't matter. I could live with what she was saying. I accepted that fully. Yeah. Well, it's like you were going to have the full picture. So you could be like opting in right? full full picture instead of like, we're just doing this out of, because this is what we do with no benefit. Yeah. Because there's standard practice. Yeah. And by the way, that's a huge change in breast cancer because I think it was only in the like... I can't remember the exact date, but I think that test only started coming out like maybe 2005 or 06 or 205. Wow. It was relatively new. And before that, chemo was standard for everybody. So think about 
difference, right? Well, think about the life expectancy too, when you do have to do chemo, like that's got to have an effect on your quality and your quantity. Yes, it does. It does. Unfortunately. I mean, it helps you live, but also like, what is the long-term? Right. There's effects of everything, you know? Yeah. So she called me up and said, both of their oncotypes are low benefit. I'm going to start you on the anti-estrogen medicine. And here's another thing. I didn't even want to do that. Right. You didn't want to be thrown into menopause? Come on. No meds. And, well, no meds. No right. meds. No I don't want medication. Yeah. You're right. I hadn't started menopause. But here's the thing. And my John doctor friend had said, one piece of advice I'm going to give you is, you know, try and base some of your decisions on like numbers and logic, not just emotion. Now, we add emotion to the picture, like what's good for us but not making, and I understood what he was saying, don't just make a totally emotional decision without fact. Yeah. That was helpful. Okay. So the benefit of chemo, and I think this is so important because again, I asked for a second opinion, would have been two to 3%. That's it. Wow. The side effects are way more than two to 3% benefit. I did not want to do the tamoxifen. Right. However, my risk without taking tamoxifen for the five years. And again, remember, this is based on our own genome, not a num- numerical statistic. Mm-hmm. Not on a 200-pound male. Right. <laughs> right. Was 35% more risk of recurring cancer. Mm-hmm. 35% is huge. That's yeah. really big. Yeah. So I said, and again, bring the you know mind body into it. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I'm going to take it with my supplements every day and just say it's a supplement and that it's good for me. Yeah. Did I whine about the hot flashes? Yes. Yeah. I mean, rightfully so. Hot flashes are just a beast. Right? <laughs> yeah. And the weight gain? Yes. Yeah. But the bottom line was I knew it was something that was benefiting me and it's one of those, okay, I'm going to do what's the best thing for me mm-hmm. for my long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I got so much MFR. I didn't even, I didn't even add that piece in. We came home at two weeks after mastectomy with expanders, drains and everything. And a dear, dear friend of mine in South Florida, about three hours away, had promised me that she did, does MFR. And she had promised me she'd be there with me the whole time. Mm -hmm. And she took a week off of work, came up and really, and medically, really, we don't usually do this, you know, but we were both therapists. And she worked on me twice a day, every day for a week at the two weeks after mastectomy. And really, I didn't have pain. I had full range of motion. I had such a good, you know, process because that even with the expansions, women say, oh, it's so painful. It felt stiff as a board, but it didn't feel pain. Yeah. So I was really fortunate about that. That's awesome. That's yeah, so good. Tons of MFR and a wonderful outcome. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. I love it so much. Me too. So with your journey, if someone could take away, what would you want them to take away from this conversation? Is it the advocacy to advocate for yourself, to ask for, to know your density? Like what is your main concern for people that aren't getting these messages? I would say a couple of them. Number one, especially in early stage, don't be led by fear. You know, there's a local doctor here who makes it all about fear. Oh, we have to do this right away. Oh, it's so bad. Oh, da, da. And I think that's the worst thing for us. We know in MFR that that affects our physical being. And so I think number one is take a breath. You know, it's okay to be emotional. I'm not saying don't be emotional, but don't be led by the fear. Mm -hmm. You know, get information. I started reading and learning and looked everything up about the reconstructions before I went. So I would be informed. I could make good decisions. And the one thing about doing quote your own research, you know, is also do it on reputable sites, you know, NIH, the cancerization. I was very adamant about not reading blogs and posts and, you know, people's stories that were horrible. I wanted good, reliable information that I could make my own decisions on, you know, and then either advocate for yourself. And if you can't, there are people who are not good at advocating for themselves. If you can't, take someone with you that will. I will advocate for anyone. I have put it out there that, you know, if you get diagnosed, I am open to communicating with you because you know, I will help you with questions or advocate because as I learned, I mean, just the things I told you, 
Yeah. Look at how many things changed because I advocated for myself. Yeah. Just asking the questions. I know that you've been a huge resource in the MFR community for people who have been diagnosed with cancer. How many people do you think you've helped just within our community, like that you've personally talked to on the phone? You know, I don't know that I could even count over all these years. Yeah. I mean, really, I I can't even, you know, because I do it locally with my patients and their friends and, you know, my myofascial therapist patients or family. Honestly, I have no idea. It's been a lot, which I love. I mean, I think I, I don't love that it's that out there and that epidemic, but I love that I can be of assistance so that that women can make good choices, you know? Yeah. I had one one woman locally from another MFR therapist that was thinking, what was, I think she was a chiropractor. Anyway, she loved to play golf and she was going to do a flap surgery that the, the reconstruction doctors often recommend flap surgeries. And one, again, a little bugaboo of mine, a little soapbox of mine is when they do it from the abdomen, they always try and sell it to them like, oh, you'll get a tummy tuck in the process. Yeah, I've treated a lot of those. <laughs> yeah, and what it does to our core and our abdomen. Oh, and yeah. this one was, she was going to use her lats, which is a lat flap. And we had a long discussion and I never make a decision for people or guide them. I just give them information. I said, you know, I will give you information and you make your own decision. And we talked about it and maybe, I don't remember what her profession was. Anyway, the bottom line was, that she ended up not doing a lap flat because of her passion for golf and whatever her profession was, because it would have affected her outcome of what she loves afterward. Yeah. You know, so just making, having, letting people make decisions like that, that can impact their future. Yeah. And it might not even be something they consider, right? Because we're thinking about like the aesthetics, which are fine. And like, if that's very important to you, which I feel like I would have some thoughts about that, right? I would be like, what am I going to look like? Am I going to love my body? Like, how is this going to affect my relationship and my, you know, how I interact with the world? And then you've got to consider like, how functional is that body? Right. <laughs> right. And is sometimes the function over uh, what it looks like more important to you so that you can make those decisions. And one isn't better than the other, but just having the knowledge yes, and someone that's gone through it to be like, this is what you can expect for this to feel like, or this is... I think for other therapists, you know, we've treated a lot of people with the flaps. I've had a tummy tuck. Uh, I don't have a flap, but I've had a tummy tuck and a hysterectomy very young. And the havoc that that had on my body now that I'm in my later forties, you know, I'm really starting to feel it now. So wiser me now would be like, we didn't really need that then. Yes. You know, I've had patients say that to me too. I wish I hadn't done it. Yeah. It was sold to me as like a way to hide the hysterectomy scars. Right. And then it's like, well, now I have this giant keloided scar and back pain. So thank you very much. Right. Yeah. And GI issues. So Merry Christmas to me. (laughs) Yeah, it it does. And and we don't look at that impact because so much of it is cosmetic. And I'll add one more thing to what you said about the aesthetics. I remember very much. And again, the reconstruction doctor I got, I think it was, a, again, another match made perfectly. Um, you know, he's Japanese origin. He, uh, he knew about my martial arts. And I said to him at the time of decision of reconstruction, I said, listen, my number one priority is my health. My number two priority is my function because of doing karate and doing MFR. Yeah you're using your arms. My number three priority is aesthetics, but I will tell you a year later, aesthetics matter. Mm. You know, I didn't think it mattered then. It does matter in the feeling of normalcy and, you know, all all the other things that go along with just our sense of self, you know, because I was never like, you know, breast oriented or anything. I was more worried about athletic, being an athletic person. Well, it was more about feeling that normal again. And I've had women who have had very poor cosmetic outcomes and it really affects them. So I do think the aesthetics matter, but it wasn't the most important thing, Mm -hmm. you know, at the time. Yeah. Well, you never know, like as you settle in and you survive and you're thriving, like what do you switch to that starts to bother you? Or what do you switch to where like this, like the importance level rises up? So, yeah. 
And it's hard to predict that for yourself when you're in the middle of making decisions about these things, because you just want to be that thriver at the end of the day. Exactly. Exactly. And then you have this long life to live and you want to like your body too. Yep. Yep. Truth. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important what you do. I've brought my own breasts to you and made you (laughs) after I had a biopsy after MRI and my boob was like double the size. And I'm like, what is happening right now? And, you know, I took your advice. I did some of the lymph drainage. I, I didn't stop treating it, even though it was, you know, I was in some fear at that time and it has gotten better. And I do notice myself starting to get fearful as I head into like my next mammogram. Mm-hmm. And I do do extra screening and, you know, with that extra screening, they're always going to find things. So you will have extra, you know, extra tests. Do you have any advice for me on like headed into those, you know, situations? So I get a mammogram, which means nothing <laughs> once a year. Yeah. And then I get an MRI once a year too. So that's kind of like what the path we've chosen based on my risk. Yes. So one of the things I've learned about cancer particularly down the road, is risk-reward. So, you know, there's all this fear about the mammogram, uh, the amount of radiation in mammograms. And the 3Ds are definitely higher radiation, but they're much more diagnostic. So there's, again, risk-reward. It's really not that high. There are some very holistic people that are, you know, say, oh, it's terrible. You know, what I've learned is it's really not excessively high. And MRIs, in case people don't know that, don't have any risk of radiation. CTs do, but not MRIs. So a balance of that is good because it's more diagnostic. And by the way, when I was at MD Anderson for the two weeks of my mastectomy, I went to the medical library and found a journal, a medical journal article that said that breast MRI is more diagnostic than ultrasound. And I copied it and I took it back to that radiology clinic. Yeah. I think that's why my doctor is so, is like, you're going to get an MRI every year. And unfortunately, we probably will find things that are nothing and we'll have to make decisions, you know, like this last time. Right. So what I would say is, you know, what we know, and I advise this before testing and especially before surgery, visualize something calm, beautiful. If we hold fear, we know that that translates into our physical being, you know? So yes, we can't be without fear sometimes, right? Yeah. But to try and minimize that and really visualize positively, visualize clarity and be information-based, you know, like you said, if there's findings, it doesn't necessarily mean it's something terrible, but let's find out more. Let's do more discovery before we rush into something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so good. It's nice to know that we have you as a resource too in our community and just, you know, I think just be having that permission to talk about it and to bring it into the light, like just be like, let's just have a discussion about this. Or like, I know I could, I can raise my hand and ask Joan this question and she's not going to think I'm crazy or I'm overreacting or I'm being like a poor me when I don't have anything really wrong with me, you know, is, is important. It is. It is because like you said, the word cancer brings fear Mm -hmm. in general, you know, it, it does. And that's something that I think, you know, things have improved so much. Here's something really positive that one of the virtual uh, seminars I listened to when I, I think it was, it might've been the same one as a snowflake for the density or the one after that. One thing that the doctor said, the, the breast cancer surgeon said is we have made more, we mean medical community, there have been, I should say, there have been more advances in breast cancer in the last five years than the previous 15 to 20 combined. Wow. That's huge. That is huge. It's huge. Wow. Well, and hopefully they just keep making more and more discoveries and we get to the root cause of why this is happening so frequently and so often. That's a whole nother topic that I'm very passionate about. Yeah. So a dear friend of mine here locally was diagnosed with early stage breast cancer Uh, She lost her husband to cancer, I don't know, five years ago or something. And I was the first person she called. Her business partner had also been diagnosed with breast cancer in 13, the same year I was diagnosed with a second cancer that I had, a completely separate cancer. 
So she, after speaking to me, went out to MD Anderson, had a phenomenal experience. Again, uh, mastectomy reconstruction, did not have to do you know radiation. So she had a really good experience. So my friend called me right off the bat you know, because her business partner gone there. And I, she said, I want an opinion at MD. And this was like immediate first thing she said. And I said, great, let's make it happen. Well, in the meantime, that was, uh, I don't know, a couple of years ago when Houston had that horrible ice storm and everything shut down. Like MD Anderson even lost water for a couple of days. Wow. Like everything was shut down. So they had to put her off either two or three weeks. I don't recall. It was not immediate like we wanted. And she said, um, okay, well, the local doctor wants to see me, the one that's fear-based, and what should I do? I said, well, go, just hear what she has to say. I mean, I read her pathology with her, but I'm not a doctor. I could tell her what it was, but I'm not a physician. I said, go listen to what she has to say about your pathology. Do you want me to go with you? Yes, please. Okay, so I wrote up my questions, and we went. Now, this is when we were still wearing masks. I think it was 20, with the beginning of 21 or something, mm -hmm. you know, still wearing masks in all medical clinics. So <laughs> fortunately, I had a mask on. <laughs> to hide your disgust and anger. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. You'll hear why. So she goes through the properties and she says, hold your questions till after. She goes through the properties of what it is. And then she says completely, uh, what's the word I want? Like telling you what to do. There's a word I want very not demanding authoritarian like, authoritarian perfect she said here's what you're going to do she says to my friend you're going to do lumpectomy you're going to do 35 radiations oh. and that's no big deal you can do the radiations on your lunch hour and go back to work it's nothing to worry about and then she went through a little more and then she said and even if you wanted mastectomy i wouldn't do it wow now I had heard this kind of thing about her before, but I had never sat in on an appointment. And then she said, do you have any questions? And my friend said, I don't, but she does. <laughs> so I asked a minor question, which wasn't a big deal. And she shot me down. And then I asked something that I think is very important to know. I understand the biopsy size, but what is the size of the tumor? Okay. Well, if you know anything about breast cancer, the size of the tumor impacts a lot, mm -hmm. you know, the amount of tissue, blah, blah, lots and lots and lots. And she literally said to me, stop right there. You do not need to know that. Wow. She said the properties are more important than the size, you know, whether it's hormone positive, HER2 positive, you know, triple negative. And I said, I understand that. Like I said, good thing I was wearing my mask because at that point I was furious. Yeah. Like, why does it hurt to know that information too? Like, right. What's the problem? Because she wants to tell you what to do and it's her decision. And she wants you to be afraid because we have to hurry up and do this because we have to do it right now because it's a really bad thing. It's cancer. Yeah. What is the benefit to the doctor that's giving that? Like, what do, what do they get for that? That's a very good question. Yeah. I don't know. It's so interesting. That's a very good question. Yeah. And we left and Obviously, my friend did not follow through with any of her thing. And so she went to MD Anderson. I asked, did she want me to go? She said, no, she was fine going alone. Her sister went. And I sat in on Zoom with her, or FaceTime with her, with her surgeon and the radiation oncologist. Now, two things about this. Number one, they offered her a clinical trial, which is exciting, which is why I wanted to add it to the podcast. Mm -hmm. Number two, I want you to hear or everyone to hear the difference in what this radiation oncologist said. So when she first sat down with him, one of the first things she said, and I had all my questions there, you know, listed, by the way, the surgeon spent a really long time with her and said, do you have any questions? And again, she said, no, but my friend, you know, has, and I said, I think you've covered them all, doctor, or whatever her name was, mm -hmm. Dr. T. And she took the piece of paper. I mean, it's a full piece of paper, you know, full of questions. And she went down every single one and answered or made sure each thing was answered after she'd spent an hour with her compared to the other lady says, you don't need to know that. Yeah. Night and day medicine. Okay. So we sit with the, she sits with the radiation oncologist. I'm on FaceTime. And the first thing she says is, doctor, I'm really afraid of radiation. He reached out, patted her leg and said, I am too. That's why I do what I do so that women can have the best outcome possible with the least radiation. Wow. What a difference in it's no big deal. Yeah. Just do it on your lunch. Don't be a wuss. <laughs> right. 
one of our MFR community therapists had a very unusual form of breast cancer just recently, this year. Mm -hmm. And they told her the same thing. Oh, you could do radiation on your lunch hour and go back to work. She said, you don't know what I do. Why would you make that assumption? Yeah. Also, like, don't you not feel good after radiation? Like, I just, I would imagine I would need like a lot of naps and (laughs) good nutrition and probably some therapy. Oh, absolutely. Therapy, nutrition, and by later on in the process, you get very fatigued. Some people, not everyone, but some people do. Yeah. I mean, it's killing your tissue. You can't just act like nothing's happening. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And also in the MFR world, that doesn't give us any time to process the emotion. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. When you act like everything is fine and it's really not. Right. That is going to create other problems, whether you see it now or you see it later. I don't know. I just, I can't with some of these people. (laughs) I know. So the trial was this, this is the exciting part, the really positive part. The trial that he offered her was a new trial they're doing or were doing. This is a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. You go on anti-estrogen medicine for three months. You go back and they measure, they do mammogram and ultrasound and measure the size of the tumor. Criteria is if it's grown, you're off the trial, you go to surgery mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. If it's the same or smaller, you can continue with the trial. Her shrunk 50% wow. in the months she was on the anti-estrogen medicine. So she continued with the trial. That meant then only five radiations. Now that was a little higher dose, but only five. Think about five. Yeah. Versus 35 on your lunch break. Yeah. What it it does to your tissue. And then went back on the anti-estrogen medicine for six more months. And when she went back, the tumor was gone. No surgery, no nothing. So she is cancer-free with no surgery. No, nothing but five radiations and one location. Wow. That's incredible. It is. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because, you know, she had the courage to do a clinical trial. Some people were like, oh, aren't you afraid you got to leave the cancer in you? I'm like, they wouldn't offer it to you if it was a risk. Yeah. They wouldn't do a trial if it was that dangerous, right? So she had the courage to do it. And she's cancer free with almost no treatment. That's amazing. If the trial goes through all its levels, that'll change the face of early breast cancer. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I know all these people with stage zero that are having double mastectomies. And but, yeah, by the way, another important fact, if people don't know it, is that in stage zero, the DCIS, there are a percentage of people, and I don't know the later percents. Okay, you know. 12 years ago, the percent was 30% will develop into breast cancer, 70% won't. Well, I don't know what the percents are these days, but the problem is you don't know if you're in the 30% or the 70%. Yeah. My sister-in-law had DCIS, was scared terribly, decided to do bilateral mastectomy. My father-in-law's wife has had DCIS for 40 years, never did anything about it. It's never progressed. Wow. So Again, it's personal decisions and how you take care of yourself, including, of course, what we believe is MFR. Right. And I believe nutrition and, you know, all of Yeah, that. there's so many, so many factors play into it. Yeah, incredible. Well, I just thank you for sharing all this information. I think just knowing, like just sharing like that breast density is a thing. Like, so for everybody listening, find out what your breast density is. You can't tell by palpating your breasts. You have to have had a mammogram to diagnose your breast density. Then once you know what it is, understand what it is so that you can advocate for yourself if you need other testing. I don't say this to scare you. I just tell you so that you have the power of that information and you're not waiting on someone else to tell you what to do or when to act. So just knowing that alone is going to save lives. It's really, it's, it's helped me to make decisions in my own health. I just, I really find it to be important. And a lot of people are like, oh, my breasts are, are dense and and fibrocystic or whatever, just from palpating them. And, And that's not, that's not how you learn what it is. If people want to get a hold of you, or if, if there's clients that are listening to this, how can they get in your schedule? Do you have a website? Do they call you? Like, how do people get a hold of you? I don't have a website on purpose. First of all, I'm old school. But second of all, more importantly, because of side effects from the second cancer, I work part-time. I basically work like a 60% day. And so I really have 
a pretty full schedule all the time. And so I don't have a website on purpose because I don't want to advertise literally. Yeah. I have word of mouth clients and patients and everyone is word of mouth, which I found to be a wonderful thing because they come with a positive expectation, you know, for sure. Yeah. You're your best referral source. I love it. It's my favorite. (laughs) Right. So my email is senseijoan at gmail.com, S-E-N-S-E-I-J-O-A-N at gmail.com. And my number, all of that information is on the MFR directory as well. Okay. So they welcome to reach out to me through the directory or on my email. Okay, perfect. So for anyone listening, you can go to mfrhealth.com or MFR therapist with an s.com to find Joan. You just look up Joan Miller in Florida and she will pop right up with all of her contact information. And the business name is Dynamic Directions, which I don't know on the new version if they've added the name to it. I can't remember. I think you can search by your business name now, yeah. which is so, it's really cool. I've been playing around on there. It's, it's a lot. It's very much improved. It's really cool. I haven't looked yet, but yes, yes. it's very good. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. I'm looking forward to seeing you in Rochester, Minnesota for another go at fashion. I can't, I can't stop taking it eighth or something. Yeah. It might be my eighth time. I lost track. Yeah. It's okay. I I don't have a problem. (laughs) There could be other addictions, right? It'll be fun. (laughs) Yeah. It'll be great. So I'll see you then. And for everybody joining us, thanks for joining us. And I'll see you on another episode of the MFR Coaches Podcast next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me today. My mission is to help every MFR therapist become a part of the movement where no MFR therapists ever under-earn or burn out. Join my 12-month coaching program. You'll spend the first 90 days setting up your foundation to create your six-figure business. Then you'll go to work and uncover exactly what's holding you back from the business that you want and desire. Get support while you raise your rates, set your policies, and learn how to talk about MFR and how to sell MFR in service of your clients. Learn exactly how you can do it too, even if you live in a tiny town and even if you've had your business for years. This program is open to all MFR therapists who want to create what is possible when you stop playing small and start showing up in your full power as the John Barnes trained MFR therapist you are. Put your magic to work in the world and help more people get out of pain and back to active lifestyles. I'll help you do it. Go to www.themfrcoach.com backslash coaching and sign up right now.